Hello and welcome to Timeless Files, a fan podcast for the TV show Timeless. I'm your host, Chris Butler. This time I'm talking about Season 2, Episode 11, The Miracle of Christmas, Part 1. Of course, this is an extension to Season 2, which ended its original 10-episode run on a massive cliffhanger, with Rufus Carlin shot and killed by Emma Whitmore and future versions of Wyatt and Lucia arriving in the bunker to possibly provide some help with that. I really expected that somehow we would get more Timeless. It's such a great show. The fan campaign was like no other fan campaign. But eventually, with time passing, it had started to look like there was no real chance of any more. But just when it looked like it wouldn't happen, a deal was made for a TV movie. Although a TV movie could never give us the story that we would have had with more seasons, it did mean that the writers were able to bring the story to an ending. Maybe not an ending forever, but an ending for now. This was shown in the USA on NBC in December 2018. In the US this was broadcast as a TV movie, but it was obviously constructed so that it could be broadcast as two separate episodes. And in the UK, that's the way it was shown, with the two parts broadcast a week apart on E4. The shooting scripts for The Miracle of Christmas clearly referred to it as Season 2, Episodes 11 and 12, so I'm going to stick with that in the way I talk about it. If you didn't catch a broadcast of this, it hasn't been all that easy to get hold of so far, depending which country you're in. But digital downloads are now available in the USA as an addition to Season 2, and it was released on a US Region 1 DVD on June 11th, 2019. Hopefully it will be available in the UK soon. Okay, so let's talk about Season 2, Episode 11, The Miracle of Christmas, Part 1. The episode starts with future Lucy kindly recapping the story so far, which I thought was a clever way to do a recap, and at the same time start to establish who future Lucy is, what she's been through and what her state of mind might be. She is shown in a bleak grey room, sitting at a small desk. There's a single bed on the far side of the room. This scene must be set before she arrives in the bunker in the present day. She says she barely remembers her life before all of this. She thought history was something worth protecting, even dying for. But then her sister Amy was erased from history, a sister she adored, and her mother was revealed as a leading figure in Rittenhouse, the family dynasty trying to rewrite history. She thought she'd lost everything, so all that was left to do was to fight. Not for the past anymore, but for everyone's future. But Rufus was killed and they lost the only thing they had left, hope. But this can't be the end of our story, she writes in her journal. They've come too far, sacrificed too much. There has to be a way to make things right. But, she says, it's all up to you now. You have to change history. And she means the younger version of herself and Wyatt. Then we pick up where the previous episode left off with future Lucy and future Wyatt climbing out of the future lifeboat. Connor Mason looks at them and says it's not possible. 
and he asks them, why would you endanger yourselves like this? Lucy says they're not immune to the effects of being in their own timeline, so they don't have much time. It was always a rule in the show that they couldn't travel to a time where they already exist. With the big cliffhanger it looked like, they had found a way to rewrite that rule book. But we're learning here that that's not the case. They're taking a huge risk by being here and they can't stay long. Lucy asks Lucy when she's from and the answer is 2023. Future Wyatt says they can't stop Rittenhouse without Rufus. Everyone is shocked that they're still fighting Rittenhouse in 2023. But Gia immediately realises what they're saying is that there is a way to get Rufus back. Future Lucy hands over her journal and tells present-day Lucy and Wyatt that the answer is in there and they need to figure it out together. Wyatt asks Wyatt about Jessica and her pregnancy. Future Wyatt says there is no baby. It was all a lie to manipulate him. It's very interesting to look at future Lucy in this scene. She looks so hurt, as if just thinking about Jessica's deception and the way Wyatt was manipulated is really painful for her. Future Lucy then starts to feel unwell, which we discover is what happens if you time travel into your own timeline. She gets a severe headache and they say they have to leave. They take the older lifeboat and leave the future one for the team to use. Gia is surprised they can fly the old lifeboat themselves, but Wyatt says they've learned a lot over the years. And the older, antique version of the lifeboat jumps away with future Wyatt and Lucy inside. For every good thing you get in these last two episodes, there is also disappointment that we couldn't have more. It's a shame we didn't get to see more of future Wyatt and Lucy. I had half thought that we might get to see them actually go on the mission with their past selves, but I guess that would have been difficult to film, and a big change to the established rules of the show. So really, we should never have expected that. The flickering, timeless doodad that is always shown at the beginning of these episodes appears here. It always starts with the main date in history for the episode and then flickers around to show the word timeless, you might expect that for this episode it would show January 1848, 01-28-1848, because that's where we're going first. But it actually shows 02-11-2012, and the reason for that will become clear later on. We cut to Emma Whitmore. She's in a warehouse somewhere with the mothership in the background. And she's giving a speech to her Rittenhouse people. She's in charge now. There are only seven of them, including Jessica. Emma is laying out her new vision for Rittenhouse. No more bloodlines or any of that cult crap, she says. She tells them if it's not for them, they can leave now. But when one of them tries it, she shoots him dead. She says she's going to take out Lucy and her damn team once and for all. Jessica asks how she can help. Emma says it's time to pay their last sleeper agent a visit. Although Emma is sounding confident in this scene, it's apparent that Rittenhouse is looking very weak at this point. Apart from Emma and Jessica, they have one sleeper agent left and about five other men. And that seems to be it. 
but of course they do have a time machine. Back in the bunker, Wyatt is brooding over the fact that Jessica was never pregnant. Lucy arrives in the doorway. She says, it's what Rittenhouse do. They find ways to manipulate people. Wyatt says Jessica probably wouldn't have been a good mother anyway, which sounds very true. And what matters now is getting Rufus back. He picks up the journal and they start to go through it. I guess these early pages refer to episodes of the show that we saw, but I haven't been too successful at working out which ones. Meanwhile, Gia is enthusing about the upgraded lifeboat which she's exploring. Agent Christopher says she's guessing it was Gia's work. Connor Mason insists he might have had something to do with it. Gia wants to go now to save Rufus, rather than waiting for Wyatt and Lucy to figure out what they should do. Connor strongly objects, saying they saw what was happening to future Lucy. For all they know, future Lucy was fatally injured by travelling back into her own timeline. Mason tells them that if you stay too long, even just minutes, the result is insanity and then death. But Flynn tells them that Lucy came to see him in Sao Paulo in December 2014 and gave him the journal before any of this started. So Lucy has travelled into her own past more than once. And since Wyatt and Lucy have the journal right now, they obviously haven't given it to Flynn yet, from their perspective. Chia says if Wyatt and Lucy were willing to risk their lives to save Rufus, then so is she. The credits are on screen during this scene. Seems like we're into the credits a little bit faster than is usual for an episode of Timeless. This episode is written by Lauren Greer. She previously co-wrote season 2 episode 8, The Day Reagan Was Shot. She co-wrote that episode with Arika Lizanne Mittman. Not to take anything away from Lauren, but it's clear that Timeless operated a writer's room and the overall plots of episodes were worked out by the writers as a team. I believe it's the case that they didn't reassemble the entire writer's room from season two. I don't know if that was a financial decision or just that it doesn't make sense to bring in a large number of writers for just two episodes. But the creators of the show, Sean Ryan and Eric Kripke, were heavily involved and worked with Erica and Lauren Greer to come up with the story here. And I don't think you can argue with that. The four of them know this show inside out, and I think the proof of it is on the screen and easy to see. This episode is directed by John F. Schwalter, a veteran of the show. He has directed four other episodes of Timeless. Season 1, episodes 10 and 12, The Capture of Benedict Arnold and The Murder of Jesse James. And Season 2, episodes 3 and 9, Hollywood Land and The General. And he also directs part 2 of The Miracle of Christmas. Lucy and Wyatt are looking through pages of the journal referring to Jessica's death, which is interesting because it means Lucy was already keeping information about this back in the original timeline where Jessica died. She gets to pages about Hollywoodland. There is a page here, clearly visible if you freeze frame it, in which she writes, 
Luckily, Wyatt had my back. He always does. With the sleeper out of the way, we walked down the long driveway towards the glittering lights of Hollywood. I took one last look at the mansion, its warm light spilling down the hill, mixing with the moonlight to light our way. As we walk, we talk about Hedy. She is a remarkable woman. On another page, Lucy writes, Even though I told him to go be with Jessica, it still hurts. He chose her, as if our time in Hollywood never happened. Wyatt says he never meant to hurt her. He was trying to do the right thing. She says she knows. She looks through further pages. They come to a description of an episode on the Titanic. It's apparent here that Lucy and Flynn had a night together. Wyatt doesn't get angry with Lucy over this, as you might expect him to, but he says he will leave her to read these pages on her own. It's not so easy to make out what Lucy wrote on these pages, but it seems she and Flynn managed to get many more people into the Titanic's lifeboats. Then she writes, It was here that I knew everything had changed. The ship, the lifeboat, our rescue. It's a miracle all four of us survived. Was it preordained to bring Flynn and I together? I'll never know. And she writes, I sat wrapped in a blanket, lost in thought, and then Flynn kissed me, and finally the pain I felt for so long dissipated, so I kissed him back. It wasn't the right time and place, and it wasn't because of the cold. Whether we admit it or not, we needed each other that night. I could see it in the way Flynn looked at me. I felt it in the way he took me in his arms, the same arms I used to run from, but not any more. That night I felt safe and protected and loved. We cut away from Lucy reading this and follow Wyatt to the kitchen where Gia is waiting for him. She is disappointed that Wyatt and Lucy haven't figured anything out yet. She wants to know why future Wyatt and Lucy didn't just tell them what to do. Wyatt says there has to be a reason. He reaches up to a high shelf and pulls out a Christmas present from Rufus to Gia. It's from 1981. She is excited to find it's an original Rubik's Cube in the original packaging. Wyatt tells her, Rufus always said there was no problem she couldn't solve. The moment is interrupted when the alarm goes off to tell them that Rittenhouse's mothership is in flight. It's going to January 28th, 1848, near Sacramento. Lucy says that is four days after gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill, which instigated the gold rush, which basically made the state of California. So they assume Rittenhouse is after gold. They debate among themselves whether they should follow the mothership or stick with the task of saving Rufus. Agent Christopher says they have to stop Rittenhouse first. It's protocol. It's what they've always done. She tells Gia this is what she trained for. So they climb inside the lifeboat. Lucy, Wyatt, Gia and Flynn. It's the first lifeboat interior shot we've had in a long while, I think. I'm pretty sure the old set was difficult to shoot in. But for the story they're telling in The Miracle of Christmas, they really needed scenes inside the lifeboat. Gia discovers this new lifeboat has an autopilot so literally anyone could fly it and this is going to be an important plot point very soon. So then we cut to Coloma, California, January 28, 1848, the caption tells us. 
Lucy recognises James Marshall, the millwright who discovered the gold and brought it to show Sutter. So far, it looks like history is unchanged. Some drunken louts shout out at Lucy. She takes exception to this and starts to tell them what she thinks of them. They say they don't see many good-looking women around there, but there were two others that morning, a redhead and a blonde. Redhead always means Emma. Lucy is wondering why Emma would have come into the town rather than going straight to the mill. She thinks they should speak to Sutter. But then Flynn notices four wanted posters, one for each of them. It's quite funny reading what the time team are wanted for. It's hard to see much of Lucy's poster, but it looks like she's wanted for rustling and poaching. Flynn is wanted for pilfering and blackmail, Wyatt for robbery and murder, and Gia for murder, train robbing and poaching. Each of them is wanted dead or alive for a reward of $500. Flynn says this is their cue to steal some horses and get out to Sutter's Mill. Lucy says they need to change. She means that she and Gia need to try to look less like women and more like men. So I guess that's the second set of clothes they've needed to steal since arriving. They ride out and pull to a stop beside a tree in an otherwise open area. Lucy and Flynn are slightly apart from Wyatt and Gia. Lucy questions Flynn about the journal and what it says about the two of them. She says he's known about this all along. He treats it somewhat frivolously. Was it everything you imagined? he asks her. Then he says, honestly, he didn't really believe they were going to be together. He doesn't think he's her type. Also, he has tried to kill her more than once. She says he doesn't know anything about her type. She must have seen a different side to him in the future. She's already started to. He says then she should stop, because if she continues to read the journal, she will see their affair ends badly, because her heart always belonged to someone else. Their conversation is interrupted when five men ride towards them. The one in charge says they stole his horses, and he laughs when he sees that two of them are women. Lucy recognises him as Joaquin Marietta, one of the most dangerous bandits in California. His half-brother was murdered, his wife assaulted. Lucy tells him her friend, Rufus, was murdered too. They're just looking for the people who did it. He says they hang people for stealing horses but he'll save them the trouble. The bandits draw their guns, but Wyatt and Flynn also draw theirs. Gia points out that all the horses have different brands on them, which calls into question whether they're really Marietta's horses. Then Wyatt offers information about the gold, if they can borrow the horses a little while longer. The bandits decide to holster their weapons. Lucy says Marietta's horse must have been Tornado, that he was one of the bandits that inspired the legend of Zorro. Wyatt says Zorro was real, now you tell me. Lucy asks, a bit sarcastically, if Wyatt wanted his autograph. Sometimes I think Lucy says these things just to mess with Wyatt. It was a little bit unclear here, at least it was to me the first time I watched this episode. 
But the outcome of this is that the time team and the bandits all team up here and they travel to the mill together so that the bandits can get some of the gold and the time team get to carry on riding the horses. We cut to the mill where people are panning for gold. Jessica is talking to a Rittenhouse sleeper agent, demanding gold from him. He wants to deal with Emma in 2018, not her lieutenant. Jessica is quick to draw her gun on him and put him in his place. She says he'll be picked up when the time is right and she takes the gold. We've not seen a lot of Jessica being openly badass in the series to date. And so it's an important scene this, just to establish she's not misunderstood or conflicted, which could have been the case from what we'd seen previously. She's just clearly a wrong one. Marietta and Flynn are talking to each other in Spanish. Marietta says he will stop at nothing to get his revenge on the people who attacked his brother and his wife. He'll kill them one by one if he has to. Flynn says he was on a similar path of violence, but it didn't solve anything. It just created more pain. Marietta says they deserve to be punished. Flynn agrees, but says it won't help his family, and he will become just as bad as those men. Marietta says, you've given up your quest for revenge? For what? And then Marietta looks over towards Lucy and says, ah... If Lucy has been instrumental in showing Flynn a different path, I think it's because she is very much the moral compass for the show. The next scene is key to the resolution of how Rufus is to be saved, and in many ways the resolution of the whole timeless story across the two seasons. Lucy, Wyatt and Gia are sitting together at the fireside. Lucy is wondering about the fact that Marietta is possibly about to go on a murderous rampage across the state of California. Wyatt is looking at her journal. He looks very troubled. He says he's realised that Jessica is the reason why Rufus is dead. Flynn has rejoined them by the fire. Wyatt says Rittenhouse brought Jessica back to distract him or to spy on them. He played right into their hands when he brought Jessica into the bunker. She kidnapped Gia. She's the reason they went to Chinatown. Because Jessica lives, Rufus dies. He didn't want to see it, but Jessica has to be taken out of the timeline somehow, and he will be the one to do it. He will make sure she never sets foot in the bunker. Lucy says he's not going back into his own timeline. It's too dangerous, and he could die. How does it help them to save Rufus if it means sacrificing Wyatt? Wyatt says, because Rufus didn't deserve what happened to him. Lucy didn't deserve what he did to her. He let everybody down and he's going to make things right. Interestingly here, Wyatt is admitting to all the things some of the fans of the show accuse him of. Lucy says, well, Wyatt's not doing it alone. She's going with him and Gia says she's going too. But Flynn says, it sounds like a noble plan. But if they all die trying to save Rufus, who will be left here to save the world from Rittenhouse? We cut to Emma and Jessica in the present day. Jessica looks thrilled with all the gold they have. 
Emma tells Jessica to store half of it and use the other half to recruit some sisters in arms. Jessica asks what Emma's going to be doing. Emma says Santa has one less chimney to shimmy down. They don't have any sleeper agents left, but Emma says she's going to 1950 Korea to buy one. Back at the 1848 campsite, Lucy wakes up. It's still night. She asks Wyatt where Flynn is. He says Flynn rode ahead. He said he wanted to scout the mill. Then we cut to Flynn climbing into the lifeboat. He sets the date on the autopilot to 02-11-2012 and the location to San Diego. The lifeboat door closes with only Flynn inside. The time team and the bandits all arrive at the mill. Marietta is excited because there really is gold here. He wonders where Flynn is. He tells Lucy she can keep the horses and he walks away. Wyatt walks off in another direction, saying they can find the sleeper agent on their own. Only Gia is thinking that they might be a bit vulnerable here, with no backup. Moments later they're surrounded with guns pointing at them. The louts from the town are here and they want the reward money that was offered in those wanted posters. We briefly cut back to Agent Christopher and Connor Mason. Christopher is putting up Christmas decorations. She says she's tired of making scarves. Mason disapproves of the choice they've made. He thinks they should have focused on saving Rufus rather than sending the team to 1848. She's struggling with the knowledge that five years on from this they will still be fighting Rittenhouse. She says it's his fault for inventing the time machines. Denise says they need to destroy them, the mothership and the lifeboat. But Mason says, as with Oppenheimer's atomic bomb, it's only a matter of time until someone else invents one. And if they don't have their own time machine, how will they stop them? And now we cut to a new location. A caption tells us this is San Diego, California, February 11, 2012. It's night time. A man is standing at the side of the road. Flynn walks up and stands beside him. The first man looks confused. He says, did they send you to protect her too? Flynn says, who, Rittenhouse? The other man says, yes. So Flynn shoots him three times. We cut to the interior of a car where Wyatt and Jessica are arguing. Of course, if you're a fan of this show, you know what this is. This is the night when Jessica was killed in the original timeline. Things are not necessarily going to play out the same way now, though, because this Jessica has been brought up as a Rittenhouse agent. Nevertheless, they've been to a bar. Some guy has hit on Jessica. Wyatt is angry. She says she and Wyatt were on a break, and it was the best six months of her life. Jessica gets a text message, which Wyatt is rightly suspicious of. Jessica tells him to stop the car and let her out. And as before, Wyatt does exactly that. He then tries to apologise and to persuade her to get back in the car, but she threatens to call the cops if he doesn't leave her, so eventually he does drive off. Now, 
it's interesting that the Rittenhouse guy said he was there to protect Jessica. It implies they know she's in danger here. So I think it's saying that there was originally a different killer. That Rittenhouse had nothing to do with her death in the original timeline. And I think that makes sense. But if there is any suspicion of another killer being present here, we don't see them. There's just Jessica and Flynn. And you might think a fight between Flynn and Jessica will be one-sided in Flynn's favour. But he suddenly gets an intense headache, just as we saw with future Lucy when she travelled back into her own timeline. Jessica hasn't seen Flynn yet. She phones the man who texted her. The phone rings and she sees the man lying on the ground. He's not quite dead yet, despite being shot three times. Which explains how he managed to send the text. Jessica now sees Flynn and says, who the hell are you? He tries to point his gun at her, but he's in agony. She charges at him and knocks him down. Remember, Flynn is a big man, but she is tough. She manages to knock the gun from his hand, and she's punching him with really powerful, brutal punches. He manages to stand up, but she drags him down again, then locks him into a, like a wrestling hold with her legs. He breaks loose again and she kicks him away, which is a fatal mistake because he rolls to where his gun fell and he shoots her twice. Slowly he climbs back to his feet and he shoots her once more as he walks past her. Which was a nice touch. I don't know if it was a thing with him to always shoot three times. I didn't notice it before but I'll be curious on a rewatch sometime to see if that was a pattern with him. Timeless has been consistently excellent with fight scenes, and I think this was a fitting final showdown for these two characters. We cut back to Wyatt, Lucy and Gia. They're being held in a barn. They don't know what's happened yet. They don't know where Flynn is. Wyatt says they could really use him right now. It's a nice touch in the script here that Wyatt is feeling more gracious towards Flynn at this moment. They have a slightly bizarre conversation about what happens to Joaquin Marietta. Lucy says historians disagree. Gia says she saw his pickled head in a jar in Chinatown in 1888. Wyatt says they need to find a way out of there. But then they hear some noise from outside. There's horses shouting and gunshots. They think it's Flynn coming to rescue them at last. But then bursting through the door comes Rufus Carlin. He says, Merry Christmas, you filthy animals, and he nudges the brim of his hat with the barrel of his gun. Wyatt, Lucy and Gia can't believe it. They say they've saved him. Rufus says he's pretty sure he just saved them. He knows nothing about having died. In a way, this is a difficult scene to sell. Difficult for the writer, I mean. Because Rufus's return to life is a bit disconnected from Jessica's death. Lucy and Wyatt realise that Flynn must be responsible, but it takes them a moment to make sense of it. And even as a fan who knows this series very well, I would hope, I found it a little disorienting, trying to figure out the implications of this. Wyatt realises that Flynn must have killed Jessica. He tells Lucy maybe this is why she ends up with Flynn. But she says she's read further into the journal than he has. She tells them she doesn't end up with Flynn. 
Wyatt follows Rufus outside and finds the men who had captured them are all tied up now, except for the Rittenhouse sleeper agent who has been killed. Marietta offers them gold. Rufus says, where we're going we don't need gold. Which I feel confident is another line heavily inspired by Back to the Future. Lucy has found a letter from Flynn. Tucked inside the pages of the journal, we hear Flynn talking about his hopes for a good future for Lucy. At the same time, we see what happens to him after killing Jessica. Still struggling with intense headaches, he sets the autopilot and the lifeboat to return it to 1848, but he jumps clear before the door can close. Then he goes to his own home, where, looking in the window, he sees himself with his wife and daughter. He doesn't go in, though. In the next scene, we learn from Agent Christopher that his body, although never identified as Flynn till now, was found in the dunes by the ocean. It was in Season 2, Episode 8, where Flynn said he would give anything to see his family one more time, even if only for a minute or a second. So it is very much the ending that Flynn would have chosen for himself. It is a shock, of course, to see Flynn killed in this episode. I'll have more to say about that shortly. In his letter, he tells Lucy she will see him again on Christmas Eve 2014. She knows the place. We see Wyatt, Lucy and Gia ride back to the lifeboat and then we cut back to them in the bunker. Connor Mason proposes a toast to Flynn and they all drink, except for Lucy who is sitting apart from them, still reading her journal. Wyatt says Flynn sacrificed his life so they could stop Rittenhouse. They owe it to him not to let him down. There is a deleted scene which would naturally sit here in the episode, I think, with Lucy sitting in the same place where Agent Christopher tells Lucy that Flynn will have a star on a CIA memorial wall. Lucy says Flynn would like the anonymity of that. I saw some confusion about this talked about online, but I think Flynn's association with the NSA was never going to be admitted to so an NSA memorial was not going to happen. I don't know if this was thought about at all, but the name Garcia ends with the letters CIA, so I like it for that. Christopher also tells Lucy that her mother Carol and Nicholas Keynes were still killed in the new timeline, by Emma they presume, but in different circumstances to those we saw previously. This time they died in a car accident, which was probably no accident. The scene ends with Christopher saying that there must be very few members of Rittenhouse left now and she says they need to go on the offensive. It's an important scene this and it's a shame that it had to be cut but I guess the episode was just too long. And it gives them something to put on the DVD. Speaking of Emma, she arrives back from her trip to Korea, I assume and discovers that there is no Jessica now. The one Rittenhouse man on hand has no idea who she is. He says, do you mean Jan? 
which is an in-joke purely for the benefit of the hardcore fans. Jan is a mythical employee of NBC, who the fans made up to represent NBC on social media. Jan had a really difficult time trying to justify NBC's decision-making. Anyway, Emma says no, not Jan, Jessica Logan. Emma still remembers her, thanks to being away in the mothership when history was rewritten. But that means Jessica wasn't around to steal gold from 1848. So Emma's gold has vanished, and she is really angry about it. She tells the flunky to get the mothership ready. Emma goes to North Korea. A caption comes up with a date, December 24, 1950. She introduces herself to a soldier, a Lieutenant Langford. She tells him she knows about his daughter's polio. She says she can help and offers him bars of gold. I guess she still had some stashed away. She says she needs a favour from him. We cut back to Gia and Rufus. She is googling Joaquin Marietta and discovers a much happier outcome for him with a family and a successful horse ranch. Rufus notices the Rubik's Cube that was supposed to be her Christmas present. She explains why she opened it early. He's still coming to terms with the thought that he was dead. He is enthusing about the new lifeboat. She says it was future Jia that did it. He thinks future Jia is awesome. He notices a scar on her shoulder. She starts to explain that life was very tough in Chinatown. He doesn't remember it, but she lived there for three years in the 1880s. Incidentally, since I did the episode on Chinatown, I realised that Jia arrives there in 1885, which just happens to be the year when Back to the Future 3 is set. That's no coincidence, I'm sure. Anyway, Rufus presses Jia to tell him more about how she got the scar, but she clams up and says she's tired and doesn't want to talk about it, except to say that she got away from the man who did it, eventually. It's kind of upsetting to see the two of them struggling to reconnect with each other here. But it's the sort of thing the timeless writers always get right. It was three years for Jia, and Rufus never went there at all in his new timeline. Lucy and Wyatt meet up in what they discover is their room. Apparently, with Jessica gone, they were together. Of course, that's not the way they remember it. He offers to move out to the couch. She says it's okay, there are two beds. She says it was really nice what he said about Flynn. It wasn't obvious that she'd heard it, but she must have done. He says he meant it. Then Wyatt says... When you think about it, Flynn was Jessica's killer all along. Wyatt was trying to find the person who ruined his life, but he never considered that he was actually trying to save it. This is a valid way to think about Flynn's actions in this new timeline, but I struggle to see why or how Flynn would have killed Jessica in the original timeline. I don't think there is enough evidence to support that. But at this point, it doesn't really matter. Flynn is definitely Jessica's killer now. Lucy is still trying to figure out if there is any way to save her sister, Amy. In his letter, Flynn implied there might be. 
Wyatt wants to try, but Lucy says they have to focus on stopping Rittenhouse, because otherwise they're going to become the versions of their future selves they met. Wyatt says he doesn't want that. They were not happy. She says, after everything that's happened, how can they unknow what they know? But that thought is interrupted when the alarm sounds. The mothership is in flight again. Connor tells everyone the destination is December 24th, 1950, in North Korea. Lucy says that's the last day of the Hungnam evacuations in the Korean War. Wyatt says that's just after the Battle of Chosin. His grandpa called it Frozen Chosin. He said it was the coldest he'd ever been in his life. It's nice that we get one more mention of Wyatt's grandpa here. Lucy says the UN troops were winning the war until the Chinese Communist Army forced them to evacuate to the port of Hangnam. Thousands of Korean refugees showed up, desperate to evacuate. Instead of leaving them behind, a General Edward Armand got them out on a cargo ship, the USS Meredith Victory. Nobody died, and in fact there were five babies born on board. They called it the Miracle of Christmas. They don't know why Emma would go after refugees, but Wyatt says they'll stop her and be back for Christmas. Gia insists that she's going with them. She's not losing Rufus again. So the next we see is them walking in the freezing cold of North Korea. Back in the bunker, Mason and Christopher cannot think of a reason why Emma would be in North Korea. Christopher says if the team can't stop Emma in 1950, then she and Mason need to stop her in the present. Then Mason finds photographs online showing Wyatt, Lucy, Rufus and Gia all shot dead in 1950. In 1950, the team are still alive, but they come across a lot of dead bodies. They hear a helicopter flying overhead. Rufus calls it a helicopter, which is another in-joke referring to the Save Timeless fan campaign. Maybe it's one in-joke too far, but, well, why not? An American voice calls out, asking if they're all right. He says to come with him. He has the last helicopter going to Hangnam. But then we see his face, and it's the soldier that Emma recruited. They don't know this, and they go with him. And that's the end of the episode. <laughs> I originally watched The Miracle of Christmas as the two-hour film. Watching it again as two separate episodes, I was really pleased to discover that this is the point where the first episode ends. Because if you go straight from this scene with them walking off with the helicopter pilot and then straight into the first scene of the next episode, it felt to me like a really awkward edit. But ending part one like this here, as a cliffhanger moment, it works great. To me, this episode is an absolute love letter to Garcia Flynn. He does appear in part two, and we'll get to that next time, but to all intents and purposes, this is the end of his story. One of the realities of TV production is that sometimes there are constraints that are beyond anyone's control. I know Goran Viznich was not available for the whole shoot, and that will have contributed to his small role in part two. But he certainly had a major role to play in part one.
I think this episode focuses on him more than any other character. We get a really poignant and satisfying ending for Flynn. I know not everyone agrees with me on this, but for me, this ending for Flynn does everything you could possibly want it to do. And it's really hard to imagine how it could have been bettered. It's better than anything I anticipated for him. It would be understandable for someone to say that Flynn's arc should have ended with him saving his family. We don't get a happy ending in that sense. But the writers really buy into the idea that he is a hero in the timeless story. Goran himself is on record as being very happy with this ending, and I sure as hell would be too if I were him. There are several things this episode does really well with Flynn. Firstly, it establishes that there was a version of the future in which Lucy's feelings for him could deepen. And as a general rule, if Lucy sees the good in you, then there really is good in you. Secondly, when Flynn takes on the responsibility for ending Jessica, it's a sacrifice that frees Wyatt from having to do it. And that gives Wyatt and Lucy a greater chance for happiness in the future. And, of course, it restores Rufus to life too. Thirdly, it shows us that when Flynn said he would give anything to see his family again, even for a few seconds, he really meant it. That wasn't just words. There was a scene back in Season 1, Episode 10, where Flynn admits that he could never have a life with his family again. He wanted to save them, but he didn't think he was worthy to be with them anymore. There is a sadness to this that, in the end, he has to accept less than he hoped for. And this is a theme that I'll come back to next time with regard to Lucy and her sister Amy. The writers had originally intended to write Flynn out of the show at the end of season one. But everyone loved Goran so much they decided not to do that and they found a way to keep him in it for season two. It was a really smart move that paid off in all kinds of ways. What else can be said about this episode? I had imagined all kinds of possibilities for future Wyatt and Lucy, but we didn't see much of them in the end. The fact they couldn't stay long in their own timeline was consistent with what we'd been told before, and seeing the effect on future Lucy with the headaches helped to establish what would later be such an important plot point for Flynn. The fact that future Wyatt and Lucy were basically miserable came as no surprise, really. We can assume it was a hard five years. I would have liked to have seen that Titanic episode, though. Ah, well. I suppose it would have blown the budget for Timeless. Present-day Wyatt and Lucy are trying to reconnect with each other here, as are Rufus and Jeer. If any of them is short-changed in this episode, it's Rufus, who only really has a few scenes. And that's a shame. One thing I can say is that they all look really great in 1848, riding horses. The costume department, as always, did a fantastic job. Abigail Spencer loves a good hat, and they all look very comfortable in their costumes. And the direction and cinematography, it's just lovely in all of those 1848 scenes. Annie Wershing was heavily pregnant at the time of shooting, I believe. That might have led to a reduction in screen time for her. And a few of the shots are noticeably framed to disguise the fact. 
Rittenhouse is shown to be at a low ebb now, and you have to question whether Emma really has what it takes to run Rittenhouse successfully. I think to a certain extent that is the point. This is an evil cult that is self-destructing from the inside, and I'll have more to say about that next time. I really like how dynamic Jessica is in this. Whatever you think of her, Tonya Glanz, who plays her, has been consistently excellent. The final fight with Flynn is brutal. It's great to actually see the quarrel between Wyatt and Jessica, which has a kind of legendary status within the timeless story. The historical figure of note here is Joaquin Marietta. The parallels between his life and Flynn's are really why he's in this episode. It's a smart choice by the writers, and they always make smart choices in this way. The Hung Nam situation is introduced here, but it's more for discussion next time. So that's all for now. In the next podcast, I'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 12, The Miracle of Christmas, Part 2. If you want to listen to any of the previous podcast episodes, they are all available on the site, timelessfiles.podbean.com, or in all the usual podcasting places, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Spotify. And you can find me on Twitter at, at @timelessfiles. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.